I am now starting. So if you can't, if when you walked in, you should have got a sheet of paper with the scripture verses and the references. The passage in Philippians is on the left-hand side, and then all the passages I'm going to be referencing are on the right-hand side. Um, I'm pretty much just going to be talking one verse at a time, so it's marked out verse by verse just for you, Dan. I was thinking about you. Um, Dan, Dan loves verse by verse Bibles, so Christmas presents for Dan. Um, so we're just going to continue in Philippians. We're going to be, I'm just going to read Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. So follow along in your Bibles or on that sheet of paper. Starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Uh, Jesus, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for everything you do for us. We just ask now that you speak through us, that my words be gentle, that it would not be my words, but your words, Jesus, that your word and your scriptures transform us from the inside out. Amen. So um, I love this last section. Paul is a good writer. He's really recapping um, his thesis statement from the beginning in chapter one. The passage in chapter one I'm going to talk about is not on there because I couldn't fit it on one piece of paper and it really bothered me. But he talked about living your life worthy of the gospel. Um, that's our ups statements. If you want to live like worthy of Jesus in acts of worship up. He said, staying firm together in the fellowship. He talks about in, in chapter one. And then he wants us to stand firm together so people on the outside can look at us and see Jesus out. So there's a clear up in and out in Paul's thesis statement in Philippians in chapter one. And there's lots of ups, ins and outs here in chapter four as he's recapping everything. So as I'm talking, I'm gonna be re saying up, in and out a lot and look for up, in and out as well. Um, so verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Big idea here is we wanna keep our eyes on Jesus. No matter what, we always have our eyes fixed on Jesus. And I think there's this misconception, there's a couple of misconceptions when it comes to rejoicing in God. First is like an easy one, especially if you've been walking with Jesus a while. There's this misconception that once you start following Jesus, nothing bad will ever happen in your life. And as we all know, that's just not true. Even when you start following Jesus, bad stuff happens. Good stuff happens too. But there's this other misconception when you read the verses like rejoice in the Lord always. There's this idea that when bad stuff happens, that means we should be like happy or we should like ignore it or we like, oh, yes, this trial or this temptation or this really crappy thing is happening. I should just be happy and worship and be glad. And that's no. When bad stuff happens, it's OK to get sad. It's OK to get upset because we're not rejoicing in the bad thing. You're not rejoicing in the good thing. You're rejoicing in the Lord 
that's where you're rejoicing in. You're not rejoicing that the bad stuff's happening. You're not even rejoicing that the good stuff's happening. You're rejoicing in God. And that's why we need to keep our eyes on Jesus, as Tom always says. And the Philippians probably needed this reminder. There was a lot of stuff going on in their lives. Paul was in jail. Um, I think the guy's name in chapter three, Ephroditus, or however you pronounce it, he was sick. They were getting persecuted from people on the outside of the church. There was conflict in the church, as we read earlier in chapter four. There was a lot going on, but Paul is reminding them, hey, keep focused on Jesus. No matter what happens, keep focused on Jesus. Nothing else, nothing else. So that's definitely our up, eyes on Jesus, no matter what. Verse five, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So that phrase, the Lord is at hand, a bunch of smart Christian people debate over what that phrase actually means. All it really means is this, that is judgment language. That is saying that God's gonna hold you accountable for something when you see that phrase in the Bible. And the word reasonable right there, it also could be translated gentle. So all this is saying is be gentle because God is going to be judging you and how you interact with people. We need to be gentle with each other and with others because God was gentle with us. God was not harsh with us when he came to save us. God is patient with us. God is loving to us. God is gracious to us. So we can't just turn around and then be harsh to others when God, who has all right to be harsh with us, isn't. That, that, that doesn't make any sense. God's loving and gracious to us. So we need to be loving and gracious to others as well. And that's going to happen because we're going to be held accountable for that when we meet Jesus at the end. And it says to be reasonable, to be gentle to everybody. And that, I think, has to do with our in and out. Everyone really just means Christians and non-Christians. So we need to be gentle and loving to people in the church, all Christians. And that's what Jesus says we need to do. Jesus says the way people will know that you're my disciples is the way that you love one another. The best way to show people Jesus is just the way we love each other in this room. That doesn't necessarily mean we can't, as the, the passage below that on the right hand side said, we can't be, doesn't mean we don't have to be frank with each other because that being frank with someone actually means that you love them. It says, don't hate your neighbor in Leviticus chapter 19, but be frank with them. That means if you really love someone, you're gonna tell them the truth. And it's okay to be frank with someone if you're rejoicing in the Lord. It's okay to be frank with someone if you're gentle. Those things go together. Being frank when you're not rejoicing and you're not gentle, those things don't go together. But if you're rejoicing in the Lord and if you're being gentle, you can be frank with people because you love them. And that's what the Bible calls us to do to each other. And especially with everyone else, when we're dealing with people at work, coworkers, bosses who are harsh, if we're rejoicing in the Lord, and if our baseline emotion is gentleness, when our boss is a jerk to us, we're representing Christ in a good way. When family members, especially around the holidays, are acting maybe not as Christian as we want them to, or as nice as we want them to, but hey, if I'm gentle, because I remember that Jesus is gentle with me, and I'm rejoicing in the Lord always, guess what? 
I can get through Thanksgiving dinner. I can get through Christmas Eve. I can get through the holidays maybe with family members um, who aren't as gentle or maybe more frank as they should be. So that's what I, that's what I took out of verse number five. Now we get to the good stuff in verse six. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So the big idea is that being anxious and being stressed isn't a sin per se. It's just not ideal. I think there's a difference between sin and something that's like not good or not ideal. Like Jesus doesn't want us walking around with high blood pressure and stress and anxiety, but it's not necessarily a sin. Like Jesus, before he died in the garden, he was freaking out. Like Jesus was having a panic attack. So I don't want, I'm not comfortable saying that stress and anxiety is a sin, but I'm saying it's not ideal. God doesn't want us to have stress and anxiety. So with that, he doesn't want us to have stress and anxiety, but he wants us to take our stress and turn that into prayer. That prayer is for our good. Think back to that example of Jesus in the garden praying to his father before his death and crucifixion. It's not that God didn't know what was gonna happen to Jesus. Like prayer isn't giving God information that he doesn't know. God knows everything. Giving prayers to God is for our good. It calms our anxiety. It makes us focus and keep our eyes on him. It's for our good, not just so God knows information because God knows all things. Those, that word supplication and thanksgiving, supplication just means our needs. We give God our needs. Again, because getting it out, I'm not sure if you've ever um, vented to someone or told someone your needs just to kind of get it out in the words, but it feels better, especially when you're praying. And you need to be doing that, again, with the baseline that says here of thanksgiving. That our, the purpose of prayer is supposed to be gratefulness and worship to God, gratitude to God. And that's something we've talked about a lot here at Crossroads, gratitude. That you're supposed to be really grateful for things. And then when you're grateful for things, that kind of takes away anxiety and stress. And something that I, that I forgot to mention in, in, verse, in verse six, talking about stress and anxiety, um, I used to think stress and anxiety was a good thing. I somehow doing my family origin stuff, thinking back to like how I was brought up and growing up, for s somewhere along the road, I thought stress meant love. I thought anxiety meant like you cared. Oh, you care about your job interview, so you stress out about it. If you don't stress out, that means you don't care. Oh, I'm lacking sleep over my science test because I care. If I'm not lacking sleep, I must not care. And I've some, I don't know where I picked it up, but like that was my baseline. So that, that has carried over into like my adult life. And I realized, wait, I can love people and love things and care about things without having a panic attack. And that's okay. I'm, I'm still working on that. <laughs> But somehow, somewhere along the way, I picked that up. And the same thing with being grateful for things. We are supposed to be grateful for everything God gives us. But we need to be grateful, but still keep our eyes on Jesus. And a quote that um, I saw when I was preparing this, um, it says that a lack of gratitude to God 
is the first step to idolatry. And all idolatry means is putting something number one. Jesus is supposed to be number one. Idolatry is putting something in Jesus' spot of worship. And I was thinking about that, that quote, and it makes sense. If I'm really grateful for my money and my eyes are on my money and I'm really grateful for my money, all of a sudden I'm focusing way too much on my money and not Jesus. I really like my bank account. I'm gonna focus way too much on that number. I wanna make sure that number never gets smaller. Actually, I want that number bigger because my eyes aren't focused on Jesus. Oh, I'm really grateful for my kids and my family. I'm so grateful, but maybe I'm focusing on them too much. I, I'm gonna do whatever it is possible to make sure my kid gets into a good college and nothing bad ever happens to my family because I control everything. No, <laughs> like that can't happen. When you make a good thing the ultimate thing, that's not good. When you make a good thing the ultimate thing, that's not good. You can be grateful for things, but you still have to have eyes on Jesus. You need to be grateful for things, but still have your eyes on Jesus. Moving on to verse seven. And the peace of God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and, mind, and your minds in Christ Jesus. Uh, three words and phrases I wanna talk about there. There's that word guard. And in the Greek, the word guard, that is a, that's military language. Like that is like something the military would use back then. Guarding your hearts and minds. Well, why would we need our hearts and our minds guarded? Nobody makes good decisions when you're stressed out and anxious. No one does anything good when you're stressed out and anxious. Nobody thinks anything good when you're stressed out and anxious. You start getting lies about God. You start thinking about lies about yourself, lies about friends and family. And those thoughts need to be guarded by God. Those thoughts need to be guarded by the Holy Spirit because those things are lies and not true. Again, you can go through stressful situations and not be stressed yourself. But when you're having stress and anxiety, you need outside help to make sure your mind is clear and then make sure your heart is in the right place. And then we have that phrase, the peace of God. And I just think that's, that's such a beautiful phrase, the peace of God. And in Paul's mind, the peace of God, that word peace is the Hebrew word or concept of shalom. And shalom isn't necessarily like a lack of conflict. You might say, oh, if two countries aren't at war with each other, then there's shalom, there's peace. Well, not really. If you know anything about the Cold War between Russia and the United States that lasted 50 years, there was a lot of tension. There was no war, but there wasn't shalom. There wasn't peace. I'm not sure if you ever had uh, gone into a fight with a friend or relative and you, um, you made up, you patched things up there, you asked for forgiveness, but there's, you still feel that tension. They're not calling you as often. They're giving you the cold shoulder. You don't spend time with each other as much, but you think, well, I, you, we, we, we hatched this out. I asked for forgiveness. You said you were sorry, but why is there still something wrong? There's not shalom there. There's not shalom there. And so shalom, peace in the Bible, doesn't necessarily mean a lack of conflict, but is also a restoration of a relationship. It's completeness 
of a relationship. The Bible actually uses the word, I think, in a way that when they fixed the the walls of Jerusalem, they shalomed the walls. They restored the wall together. And the problem with, with us is that all of us don't have shalom in this world. We are born into this world completely not peaceful. This is a not peaceful world. And we did not have shalom with God. We had tension with God because of sin. But like Romans 5, 1 says, we are justified by faith. And now we have shalom with God. We have peace we got with God. We have a restored relationship with God because of what Jesus did on the cross. Like the biggest problem in the world right now is that people do not have shalom and peace with God. I mean, I can, I can tell you the biggest problem in the world right now. The biggest problem in the world is me and you, but I'll, I'll, talk, I'll talk about me. Like everyone wants to look on the outside to see what the problem is. Everyone thinks it's stuff out there, but really the Bible says the issue is inside. Our sin is the biggest issue with the world and our sin needs to be dealt with and that we're justified. That means that God would look at you just as if you never sinned, that God took all your sin. He nailed it to the cross, that anyone who would come to him in faith has peace with God. And if we want out there to have peace with God, we have to make sure first that we have peace with God and they need the peace of God. People need the peace of God. And then we will see changes in our world. The biggest problem isn't out there, it's inside of us. And no one likes to look inside of ourselves. We never like to think we are the problem. It's always someone else's fault. That's the first thing Adam did. It's not my fault, it's Eve. Eve said, no, it's not me, it's Satan. This has been a game that's being played forever, literally. It's always a heart issue, it's always on the inside. We need to be keep transforming ourselves to become more and more like Jesus every single day. And that peace of God, that shalom of God, surpasses all understanding. God's grace and God's love does not make any logical sense in my mind. I don't deserve God's love. I don't deserve God's forgiveness. And, I, and I've said this before, like, to be honest, like, the, the idea of hell really makes sense to me. And let me, let me just like, explain that. So like, I'm created by God. God created me in his image. God loves me. And now I have rebelled against God because of my sin. I wanted to do things my way. I think I'm smarter than God. I reject God. So then I spend forever without God. Makes sense. What doesn't make sense is that I'm born in the image of God and he loves me, but I reject him and I live my life separate from him. And for no other reason other than the fact that he loves me, came down, saved me, forgave me of my sin, and now I get to go to heaven. To me, that makes no sense. To me, that's, that's crazy. Why would a God love someone like me? But that's what love is. And that's the kind of God we love, that's the kind of God we worship, and that's the kind of God we serve. 
that God would love broken, sinful people just because he loves you. And that's what love is. Love doesn't have a reason. That's the kind of peace we have with God. It surpasses understanding. It surpasses logic. It surpasses anything our minds can wrap our heads around. The crazy love of God that we don't deserve, but he gives it to us anyway. So now that we are rejoicing in the Lord always, we're gentle because remember that God is gentle. We have the peace of God, the shalom of God. How can we make sure we stay in this place of rejoicing and gentleness and peace? Paul gives us practical examples and application here in verse eight. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about these things. That God God wants us to be thinking and meditating on things that are godly and good. Think about these things, meditating. Psalm chapter one talks about how you just, blesses the man who just meditates on the word of God day and night over and over again. That there's nothing more lovely, true, honorable than God's word. Always be thinking about scripture. Always be listening to hymns and worship songs. And I'm preaching to myself right now. There's, there's not a whole lot of things on my phone that are true, honorable, lovely, just. There's not a whole lot of things on social media and Facebook that list under those categories. And I heard one time someone say that when we do get to heaven one day, this generation of people, what we're gonna find out is that we had plenty of time for prayer, that we had plenty of time for, for Bible study and for community, and we just chose not to. And I remember hearing that, and I'm like, well, that sucks, because that's absolutely right in my life. Um, we're supposed to be thinking and meditating on things that are good, scripture, holiness, godliness. Well, why? And it talks about that in lastly, in verse line, in verse nine, what you have learned, received, and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. That our conduct should follow our thinking. If we wanna act godly lives, we need to be thinking godly thoughts. If we want to act like Jesus, we need to be thinking like Jesus. That again, our inside needs to be changed so then our out can line up accordingly. And that's what it says also in Romans in chapter eight, and this is on your paper there. Starting in verse six, it's contrasting these two ideas, the flesh and the spirit. And whenever you see the word flesh in the Bible, it's talking about sin. It's talking about like your own natural desires that aren't godly. But the spirit, that's talking about the spirit of God, things that are good, things that are awesome. So just keep that in mind as I read these two verses. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But to those who live according to the spirit, set their minds on the things of the spirit. But to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. That if we want to have our lives model Jesus, be like Jesus, we want to be holy and awesome for the gospel, represent this church well, our minds need to be set on the spirit, not on the flesh. 
And what happens when we do that is, as, at, at the end of verse six? For the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. That if you want to have true life in the world, we need to make sure our hearts and our minds are transformed by Jesus, that our hearts and our minds are in line with what Jesus wants us to do. Jesus in John chapter 10 says, the thief comes to kill and destroy, but Jesus says that he came to give life and life to the full. Like Jesus isn't holding good things back from us. He's not saying, oh no, don't do this, don't have fun. No, no, Jesus wants us to live this life to all its fullness. And to do that, we need to make sure our hearts belong to Jesus and our minds belong to Jesus. And it says that we get life from that. And, but we also get peace. That, that's one of the reasons Jesus came is to get peace. The Christmas passage is on, on your sheet too from Isaiah, that to us is gonna be a child born and his name is gonna be mighty God, wonderful counselor, everlasting father, prince of peace. Or you could say that king of peace, that Jesus came to give life and peace to the world that desperately, desperately needs it. The only way to have life is to have life and peace with God, to have completeness and restoration of the relationship that you were supposed to have with Jesus, that Jesus made that way possible by his life and his death and his resurrection, and that anyone who has faith in Jesus has an opportunity to have life and peace with him. And then Jesus promised one of the last things he said before he went back up to heaven to his father. He said, behold, I'm gonna be with you always. That not only do we get God's peace, but the last part of verse nine in Philippians says, the God of peace will be with you. Not just the peace of God, but the God who is peace himself. It's a part of who God is, the God who raised himself from the grave, the God who created the universe, the God who gives you peace, he's just gonna be with you forever. He's gonna be the one transforming your hearts. He is gonna be one transforming your minds. He is the one that's gonna love you always forever. And that's the kind of God we worship and love. And that's the God who gives us his peace and life. Let's pray real fast. Uh, Jesus, uh, just thank you so much for your peace. Thank you for your love and your grace that we don't deserve. Father, I ask that if anyone here needs peace with God, who needs life with God, that you give them your peace, that you give them your life so they can live life and life to the full. Father, let all we do glorify you. Amen.